The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So hey, uh, here's what we're going to do. Normally we're in the book of Ephesians, but we're going to take a month off. So will you grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6? If you do not have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high, and we will make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, this is a gift to you. We pray that... Uh, that the Lord would use this to introduce you to a greater and greater degree to who he is. As you're turning there, Genesis chapter 6, I do have a couple of announcements if you can keep an ear tuned in to me. Um, oh no, that's last week's. Hang on. Right now everybody's going, ah, Jeff. There we go. Here we go. Um. Christmas food baskets, the deadline for that is next Sunday, so make sure you uh, help us out with that so we can provide meals to families throughout the valley. The deadline is today for the Joys and Toys program. If you forgot, um, just stop by the table on your way out and they'll tell you what you can do so that you can get those things back to us. Danny, good to see you there, man. Um, Sorry. Um, And uh, if you would, just touch base with those guys on the way out. They'll tell you what to do, how to get that taken care of. Uh, Ladies, Christmas celebration is one week from today at 6.30. Signups end, no, wait a minute, that's not one week. Yeah, it's one week. Signups end on the 9th. Reservations are required for what they're doing. So, ladies, you're going to want to stop by the table on your way out as well. Huddle leaders, huddles meeting throughout the valley. And then, oh, finally, Jeremy asked me to throw this one in. Um, he's got a high school winter retreat where they're going to Sun River and Mount Bachelor. And the sign up deadline on that, Jeremy, it's, I didn't write it down. When is it? Jeremy, when's the deadline for the sign up for the thing? Today. Today's the deadline. So if you want to go snowboarding, sign up today. Um, Yeah, that's enough for announcements. So Genesis chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be taking a break from the book of Ephesians for about a month as we do a little Advent series. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning as we get going. But uh, let's open up, if we can, in a word of prayer. God, we're so thankful for your grace upon our lives. We're thankful, Lord, for the season, for the gifts, for the things that that we just get to to enjoy and celebrate. But at this time right now, Lord, we pause just to bow our heads before you in humble gratitude and say thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you have not left us here to, to wonder what you think or desire. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us such clear direction and revelation in your scripture. Thank you, God, that we can open this and learn of your heart. And thank you, Lord, that your heart towards us is so good and so gracious. So, God, as we begin this new season of Advent, celebrating the fact that you came and looking forward to the day when you come again, Lord, may you be first and foremost on our minds. May your spirit be our instructor and our teacher Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, it's the Christmas season. Now that it's officially December, I am now on board with the holidays. Just so you know, I'm not a bah humbug guy, but I am in October. You know what I mean? Like Christmas used to start in December, then it moved into Thanksgiving area and stuff like that. You had Black Friday and Christmas. Now I think Christmas actually starts somewhere around August 5th, I think is the actual day when they start putting things out. And I think that's ridiculous, but we're in December now. So everybody with me, Merry Christmas. Merry 
All right, that's what we can do. We're going to be talking about the holidays. If you're one of those bah humbug people, knock it off, get on board. You'll be happier. Trust me. Amen. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to be spending a season now this month thinking about this season. It's a season of promise. That's what everybody says. Season of hope, season of promise. But the promises, depending on whose promises you're listening to, are really, really different. And we get a lot of promises, like I said, starting sometime in August regarding what we need in our life. Marketers are loving this season, right? And they've been marketing towards us and will continue to pile on us and inundate us over and over and over with a message. And the root of the message they don't actually tell you, though the root is there and does subtly come through. The root of the marketing message in this holiday season is this, your life stinks, happy holidays. That's true. And this is what they do. The idea is, is in this season, there's something missing. Something's broken. Something's not right. There's something we don't have, but take heart. The holidays are here. The new season's coming. There's hope. It can all be fixed. And so they're going to sell us on that, which is going to fix that which messed up in our life. And so it might be things. It might be things. Ladies, he went to Jared. Right? It might be that. You might be lonely and questioning, is this the guy? Does he really love me? All that kind of stuff. But take heart. He went to Jared. Or he bought you a car. Men, can I just, public surface announcement for just a moment here. On behalf of the men in the room, if you're one who went to Jared or bought your wife or girlfriend or whatever, a car, something like that, do us a favor, please. I mean, God bless you for that. Keep it off of social media, please. On behalf of the rest of us who did not go to Jared and cannot afford a car, off of social media. Um, especially for the guy who messed up and bought her a vacuum cleaner. That would really help him, all right? But that's the idea. There's things that you need. And so the gift that's going to come and everything from the, the wish books they used to give us as a kid. Can I get an amen for the JCPenney or Sears wish book as a kid? How many of you spilled a lot of ink circling stuff in those wish books when you were a kid, right? From that all the way through, we are being targeted by people that are saying, this is the thing you need to be happy. It might be an idea. They might be selling you on an idea. Family's going to come together. Man, that Norman Rockwell feeling of old that you miss so much is coming back together. We're all going to wear sweaters. The Christmas lights are going to be perfect. We're going to sip hot cocoa and sing Christmas carols together. It's Clark Griswold's expectations, right? Everything's going to be right. The bonus check's going to come in on time. Everything's going to be happy. They don't know my family. Vern, not you, not that part of the family. <laughs> Wherever you're sitting. But this will be the idea. Sometimes they're going to sell you on an idea that it's a season of peace and hope and there's sentimental values or, or people are going to come together and those things that seem so scattered and distant are coming and you're going to find joy. Everything's going to be fixed. But does it? Now again, love the holidays. Love the holidays. Hung lights on our house this week. I love shopping. Love buying the gifts. Love getting the gifts. I love all that kind of stuff. I, I love the holidays. But, but we need to be realistic about those promises that are being made to us all the time. That are telling us all the time that they're going to fix that which we're missing in our heart. Because if we're really honest and we can look beyond that marketing sham, if you will, we have to understand that it doesn't work. I mean, there's a real thing called post-holiday blues. If the promises made pre-holiday held up, 
why would there be post-holiday blues or Christmas hangover, as it's called? And we're not talking about drinking, though that might be in there too. But the idea that life suddenly goes from 60 miles an hour to zero in a day. And the family that came together, let's say your family nailed it and you had the classic, you know, Norman Rockwell gathering, but eventually they go home the newness of the gifts wears off. And let's not lie, they, they make us feel good. You ever noticed how a thing can make you feel different for a little while? How a new car can make you feel better about yourself? How new clothes can make you feel better about yourself? The problem is they don't stay new, do they? And no matter how amazing the holiday might be, January 3rd or 4th or wherever it lands this year, you're going to go back to work. You're going to be back in the office. You're going to be back on campus. You're going to be back in school. You're going to be wherever it is. And all that buzz is gone. And there's a real thing called post-holiday letdown where all those expectations either came crashing down because the family gathering that you thought was going to be amazing was ruined when that one uncle showed up. You know that one uncle? If you don't know, you are that one uncle probably. But, but when that person came or the harmony you thought you were going to have in the household didn't work out because there's that broken relationship that's still not there and you felt tension or the gift you, you thought he went to Jared, he went to Walmart. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, in the end, the promises never really hold up. There's a letdown. There's something not quite there. The, the holidays, year after year, we build such hope, and yet the holiday itself is never able to hold up to the promise. It always ends up in that sort of letdown. Why? The, the reason is because is we've got our perspective difference. It's an issue of shadow versus substance. I mean, Paul wrote about this in the Bible. In the book of Colossians, let's put this verse up. Colossians 2, 16 through 17 says this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is what Paul says. The festivals, the celebration, God's for them. God prescribes festivals. God prescribes feasts. God promises that in that day when we're reunited with him in eternity, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's celebrations and music and feasting and joy. God's into this. But, but they're not the end all. They're a shadow. And for us to cling so tightly to a shadow and to ignore the substance that creates the shadow is always going to leave us disappointed. It's like a guy falling in love with the silhouette of a woman on the ground rather than allowing that to lead him to the person that's casting the shadow in the first place. He says, with these festivals, listen, understand, they're great. I mean, revel in them, enjoy them. Festivals are good. They're even godly, but, but they're shadows. And don't put your hope in the shadow. Don't forget to look beyond the season to understand the reality of what's behind these things. And, and this is a warning we need not just in the holidays, but forever. We are shallow worshipers who glory in creation rather than the creator who made it. And so we can go to places and see like a, a sunrise over Crater Lake or, or a sunset over the ocean. And we can see these created things and be moved like be genuinely moved. Have you been in, in those kind of situations before where you're just in awe? It's almost like your breath is taken away by this beauty. But too easily we forget the reality that we should be in awe of the God who has created such things. 
But it's too easy for us to forget those and be distracted by the mere shadow. Paul is saying, hey, don't hold to a shadow. Don't hope for a shadow. Those things are temporary. This, this Christmas buzz that we're feeling right now, it's temporary. And in Ecclesiastes in the scripture, it says that he has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity in the hearts of men. You have been designed to long for something grand and glorious and hope-filled, but not the shadow of it. You've been designed for something permanent and long-lasting, and too often we're embracing this shadow and missing the reality. And so something that church many, you know, forever ago came up with, especially if you've come with a, uh, maybe a denominational background or, or old church or high church, they call it background, there's, there's a thing called Advent that was created some time ago. And Advent is a celebration where they take the first four weeks leading up to Christmas and set it aside to understand that reality, to focus on the substance and not get completely bogged down by the shadow. The word Advent in and of itself actually means the coming or the visit. And it's a celebration that's been around forever. How many of you, just curiosity, show of hands, came from a church background where you celebrated Advent regularly? Raise your hands. So there's a few here that are familiar with it. There's a lot of different ways to celebrate Advent. Some of you have been given the Advent books or calendars where you open the little window each week. And each one of those is designed to point you to Jesus each day. You celebrate Advent with Advent candles so that on each Sunday leading up to Christmas, the candle is lit with the Latin, is that English? Litten? With the last candle being the one that represents Christ on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day to celebrate the fact that he has come. But, but Advent in and of itself, the tradition around Advent was designed for the purpose of helping us look to the promise of Jesus fulfilled and the promise of his coming. Now, if you're doing the math already and you're a technical geek on these sort of things, you're going, you said four Sundays before, Jeff, and it's three Sundays before you've already blown Advent. True, but we're not legalists, so we're fine with that. We're going to do our last one the week after. And so this is the idea. By keeping our eyes on the substance rather than the shadow, I think it better prepares us to handle the weight of this season. I think you're going to get less crushed by family squabbles when you hoped for Norman Rockwell or Leave it to Beaver. If you're understanding that even that is a shadow of the reality that you've been adopted into the family of God and that that's where peace is. You won't look for peace in your household. You'll look for it in the Prince of Peace instead. Or when he did go to Walmart instead of Jared. You're not going to be crushed by the fact that the gift you wanted is not exactly what you had hoped. Or the gift that came isn't quite as amazing as the advertisers said it is. Because your focus will not be on the shadow, but on the reality that this gift, even this gift, is a reminder of the gift that has been given. And the gift that says he's returning again. And so this is the purpose of Advent. So our plan is next week we're going to be getting together here and we're going to be talking about the promise. We're going to look at the promise of Christ's coming. The next week, December 20th, right before Christmas, we're going to have a big all-family service here with tons of Christmas music. Kids are going to be in here with us. It's going to be chaos and amazing and awesome. And we're going to be looking at the arrival, the birth of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of and then that last week, December 27th, a couple of days after Christmas, we're going to gather together to then, as Advent is designed to do, look ahead to the second coming. So all of you prophecy geeks that are always wondering why Jeff doesn't ever talk about that stuff, your week is coming. Don't skip because it's the holidays. I don't want to hear it if you're not here. Amen? So this is our plan. But today we're starting a little darker. 
Today we're starting a little darker because here's the deal. You can't jump into Advent and start with the birth of Christ because that's not the beginning of the story. And in any book or movie or anything you get, if you don't know anything that's going on and you just jump to the middle of the story, you're going to be filled with all sorts of questions. And the same is true here. If we jump right to Luke or we jump right to Matthew and start looking at the birth of Christ and, and you don't know anything else that's going on, there's all sorts of questions like, okay, so it's a baby, but there's lots of babies. What's the big deal? Why is this baby so special? And, and why did this baby have to come? And why are total strangers traveling so far to come see this baby? Why is there such a big to-do over this particular baby? What's the point of all of this? And the reality is this, as beautiful and glorious as the birth of Jesus Christ is, it's fitting that you see these accounts of Jesus being born in the dark of night. Because as wonderful as it is, the birth of a baby, here's the staunch reality. The birth of that baby on that Christmas Eve... That baby was born from the grief of God. Look, if you would, at Genesis chapter 6. This is a story that many of you guys know very well. It's going to lead into the famous story of Noah and the ark. The real story, not that movie one that came out recently. In this story, God's creation has gotten awfully off track. And we pick it up in verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Those are heavy words. When God saw this, it grieved him to his heart. The, the hearts of man was only evil continually. This passage right here is an incredibly deep passage. That men had rebelled against God and the wickedness that had grown on the earth had come so severe, had become so pervasive that the, the hearts of men was only evil continually. And that God is grieved that he had even made men when he saw what's going on here. But to really understand what's really going on, there's, there's some key words in there that, that teach us it, this is more than just some rules got broken and God's mad. This isn't just a, hey, God said live like this and they're not living like this anymore. And so they're in trouble and they deserve it. And so punishment came. That's not the heart of the story here. Because the reality is when you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and start studying through creation, you realize human beings, every human being, then and now that has ever existed on the face of the earth was created to love God. Every human being. If you're in this room and you don't even believe in God, that's okay. Not really, but that's okay. You were created to love God. This is what the scriptures teach us. Everyone was created to love God. And, and this, this love of God was, was to put God as central in every area of our life. Every decision, every desire, everything we do being rooted on God. Not like today where we fit God in where we can, but the idea was to be that man was created to love God and God would be absolute central in every area of our life. So much so that you should be able to ask anyone anything and the answer to that question would ultimately be God. Jeff, why do you do this? God. Jeff, why do you think that way? God. Hey guys, why, why are you like this? God. 
That was to be the, the purpose of all of these things. And every single thing that we do was to be motivated by a deep and overriding love of God in every area of our lives. Now, we are clearly wired to love. No one would argue that. Even some of the most hardcore atheists will celebrate love, brotherly love, community love, love of those weak. We are clearly wired to love. It's just a matter of what it is we love. But the reality is we were designed to have a Godward love that would dominate, rule, and direct everything in our lives. Now this passage here in Genesis 6 is clearly talking about the disobedience of men, the wickedness that was on the earth. But the issue wasn't just rules. It wasn't just they got out of line. It wasn't just the actions and things that were done. In this passage, you can see that it was the hearts of men. The intentions of the hearts of men were only wicked, only evil, continually, the scriptures say. So this idea is that the hearts had changed. This is what we have to understand. This is what we try to teach our kids even. Listen, obedience to God is more than just a following rules. The roots of obedience to God should be that overriding love of God. The idea that I love God so much that I am more than willing to live within the boundaries that this good, loving lawgiver has given us. So I love God, therefore I am more than happy to live in accordance with his commandments. I love God. I want to bless him and honor him and serve him. And I want to be able to even give my life and my obedience to God as a, as a gift to him who has given so much to me. And we understand this because we live this out even right now. I mean, think of it this way. When you're out there Christmas shopping and buying things for people, you don't carry the same level of desire and emotion into every gift you buy. There's some people that you don't really care so much what the price tag says. Because you love them and you want to do something for them. There's other people like the coworker you drew in the Secret Santa thing where you're like, $10 gift. <sighs> that looks like a $10 gift. It's $5.99, but that's good enough. Or $9.99. Oh, it's $10.01. That's too much. I'm not spending that much on that. I mean, there, there's, there's differences, is there not? Come on, Christians, quit being fake. There's differences, right? We do carry the same different motivations into the gifts that we buy. And so the idea of obedience to God's rule was that, that we love God so much. We understand who he is and what he has done and how good he is, that that love then drives everything that we do. And so we want to live in obedience with him. But here in Genesis chapter 6, we find that the love of God is not the root anymore for the actions that men are committing on earth. That their hearts are now wicked, only evil continually. So, so what takes the place if the love of God was that which was supposed to dominate everything we did, then what, what has taken that place? What could be so amazing and so desirable to us that we would take God and set him aside and say, instead, I want this? Well, Paul teaches us about this. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul was writing about the reason that Jesus came. The reason Jesus was born and died. And he says this, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, died and was raised. Paul tells us really clearly that the real root, when it all boils down to it, the things that we love more than God, it's not just a thing or a person. When you really boil it down, the issue is self. We are lovers of self more than we are lovers of God. We are self-sovereigns. 
and from the very original fall in Genesis chapter 3 where, where that lie was sold to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. In that moment, man made its first of many decisions to supplant God from his throne and put ourselves there. And so we live for self-comfort, self-joy, self-happiness, self-fulfillment. We are self-sovereigns. This is who we are now. And the results of this are really far-reaching. Think about it. Why is marriage so hard? It's because we're selfish. And the very core of making marriage work is setting the needs of someone else above your own. And we're not great at that. Why is parenting so hard? Because we gave birth to little self-sovereigns who are totally determined to self-rule. Right? This is the very core of what's going on. All sin in the end is rooted in a failure to allow love of God to direct us towards him, but a self-love. And when self-love rules, chaos and wickedness and all of these things come. I mean, look, we're, we're reading this out of Genesis chapter 6, the days of Noah. Well, not to get too far ahead in the whole looking forward to the second coming, but when Jesus was teaching in Matthew 24 about the day that he would return, he said, it's going to look a lot like the days of Noah. The last days when I return, it's going to look a lot like those days. And Paul, in writing about the last days, says this in 2 Timothy 3. We have the text for this. Look at this. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be, everybody say it with me, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Is any of this sounding familiar? Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. What does the world look like today? Should we read it again? This is the world that we live in. So think about it. The root cause of some of the atrocities that we see in the world out there, what are they? Why does abortion exist? Self-love. Why does terrorism exist? Self-love. What makes someone go into a place in California and just start shooting up people they've never met, totally innocent, at least with regards to their particular cause, what causes someone to do that? It is the desire to say, what I believe in and what I love and the message I want the world to see is more important than any of these people. In fact, their lives are meaningless and worthless to me compared to what I want. Therefore, I'm going to kill them and use their deaths to promote that self-love. It's the root of all of it. Corruption, debt, terrorism, pornography, sexual immorality, all of these things. Why is someone slanderous tearing down others so they can build their own esteem? Why is someone unappeasable? Why is someone ungrateful? All of these are rooted in self-love and a rejection to love God the way that we were designed. There's this, this saying out there, and I understand it but it's wrong. <laughs> There's this saying out there, even based on the Ten Commandments, to say that, that these sins are vertical. These are sins against God, you know, the, the, the different, you know, uh, graven images, things like that. Religious sins, let's call them. And then these are the horizontal sins, sins like theft and murder, because they're sins against people here. But, but that's really, if you really think about it, it's a false dichotomy. All sin is vertical. 
all sin is vertical. That's why when David sinned against men around him, resulting in death and and sexual immorality and all these things, when he repented and prayed to God, what does he pray? He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Because David self-loved. I want this. I know God says I can't have that and I need to be like this, but I'm not gonna live that way. I'm gonna live for self and that's the result. Every sin is vertical. Every sin on earth. So you go all the way back to Genesis 6 again. There's wickedness all over the earth everywhere. There's all kinds of horrific things going on. Sins against one another, sexual immorality, all sorts of things going on. But all sin is vertical. All sin is that failure to love God. And the hearts of men were not committed to loving God. And so what's God's response to that? Look at verse 6 of Genesis 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Guys, God is heartbroken. There are people out there that want to take this story and use it to show you what a cold-hearted, cruel God is in a way to keep you from actually committing your love to him. But the root of the story is the story of the heart. And he's grieved. He's broken-hearted at the sin and rebellion that he sees. He's grieved at the rebellion. He's grieved at the personal offense. He's grieved at the pain that he's seeing caused to those who he loves so much on earth. He is grieved. This is less about God having rules that they broke and he's mad about it and it's more about the fact that God's heart has been broken by those who were designed to love him and the loss of relationship that now exists between God and every person he had created on earth. He's heartbroken. And so verse 7 comes along and it sounds like the horrible end of the story. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It should be the end of the story. It's sad. And even when you read that, do you find yourself, even if some of us, you know, that have grown up in the church were being really honest and giving the real answer, I'm not talking about the correct answer. We know the correct answer. The real answer, like what we really feel in our heart, we would say that sometimes we read that and it feels wrong. It feels mean. God, you're going to blot out everyone on earth because of this offense? But we do the same thing. I mean, ask yourself, how long do you hold on to relationships in your life that are continually against you? Friends that are continually sinning against you, continually offending you, continually pushing you to the side for their own self-love, making you pay the price for that. How long do you keep those kind of relationships before you just decide you're going to blot them out of your own life forever? We do the same thing, and we do it way faster. We do it way too easily. But that's not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. Look what it says in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's this man named Noah who just finds favor. It means grace. That means Noah's not innocent. It means Noah's guilty like everyone else. But, but grace was just some, God just poured grace on Noah. And that's the beginning of an incredible story, actually. Because after the flood and, you know, the bird comes back with the twig, rainbow, mountain, land, animals out. You guys know how it works, right? After that comes a genealogy. 
Not the most riveting reading, usually these genealogies, but, but when you read this genealogy, you find first that, that God makes a, a covenant with Noah's children to bless them, to protect them. He's not going to blot them out like this. So the rainbow's there given as a promise. And then this genealogy takes place, and Noah has a son named Shem. Shem has a son named, well, he had a name. And then, and then he had a son named Shelah, and then he had a son named Eber, and Eber had a son named Peleg, and, and Peleg had a son named Ru, and then Ru had a son named Serug, and he had a son then named Nahor, and Nahor had a son named Terah, and then Terah had a son where suddenly we all come back and go, oh, oh I'm, I'm with you now, named Abram. And Abram's born. And God comes to Abram and he makes another promise, another covenant to Abram. And he says, hey, Abram, through you, through your seed, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Think about that. From I will blot out man from off the earth comes grace. And he says, through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And this promise of grace is given. And this is the significance of Christmas. Christmas is all about a tree. Because through that lineage comes that baby. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the significance of Christmas. This teaches us we have to understand our need. We need to understand the need of the baby to come or we'll miss out on the glory of the fact that he came or the beauty of the promise that he's still coming. Because the issue here that we see in Genesis 6 is the same issue we still have today. It's an issue of the heart. That men's intentions in their heart is evil and wicked. And we can't just fix that. He didn't go to Noah and say, now Noah, you saw what happened to everybody else. So stop acting like that and be good. And Noah's like, yeah, yeah, sir, don't want that. So we're going to start being this way. In fact, if you read Noah's story, it doesn't take long to say, sounds just like the people before. But he was given grace. See, the issue is the fact that we have broken hearts, that our desires towards God have been broken, that in the fall, we have broken hearts and we are controlled by these hearts and no men can change your own heart. We are controlled by them. We don't need improvement. We don't need direction. We need rescue. And so for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that baby's born then in Bethlehem. This, this little baby born into this darkness in a dark time. And, you know, we have this tendency to think sometimes that, man, the earth's gotten really bad now. And, but the days before weren't quite. So we, get, we have that Norman Rockwell, that thinking into the past kind of revisionist history. It's not true. Or even warned in Ecclesiastes, the, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, says, hey, don't say, why were the days of our fathers so much better? It's foolish to ask such questions. Hey, that's not the case. Look at Genesis 6. The earth fell completely in Genesis 3. And Jesus himself was born into a dark time. We look at the terror that took place just this week. And we forget that Jesus was born into a time where the king of that land, understanding that a baby had been born that would be the king of the Jews, was so filled with self-love that he would go into a town and murder all of the children to try to prevent that baby from taking the throne. That's terrorism. 
state-sponsored terrorism. Sin has always been around. This darkness has always been here. But Jesus was born into that darkness, into a time particularly where the voice of God has not been heard for 400 years. And from the first step that little baby born on that day took, every step was directed towards a tree. Every step. Not a tree that we adorn and make pretty, but a tree that was gnarly, ugly, and bloody. Not a tree that we put lights on to decorate, but a tree in which the light of the world was hung. And there he paid the price for our sin and our rebellion and the fact that we do not love God. And even his life up to that point as he's walking towards there, every step he took, what is it he's saying all the time? Not my will, but thine. I only do what I see the Father do. He perfectly lives out this idea that the love of God is to control and compel us in every area of life. And as innocent as he was, he then goes to the tree and carries on that tree the weight of our sin and our rebellion, and our self-love, and all those things that we saw listed in 2 Timothy, all of those things were placed upon his shoulders that we might be saved. And now, because he is resurrected from the dead, defeated sin, and now has ascended into heaven, where he's our advocate, and his Holy Spirit has now been sent, we're being changed. And so now those who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, who, who have committed and been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they, sometimes now we actually make decisions based on a love for God, but not always. And sometimes now our decisions we make are, are made because not our own self-will, but because we understand what God wants in our life, but not every time. So those of us especially that have been walking with Jesus for long enough realize something. That, that we didn't just need him to come, but we need that grace continually in our lives. That we, we constantly need, because every single Christian in this room, in this last week alone, has exhibited both that changed heart that desires to serve and love God and that self-loving heart that has also resulted in all the chaos that we see in the world in the same week, usually in the same day. And we need the grace of God to uphold us, to lift us up, to support us, to care for us. And that's where we start looking to the future. Oh, but he's coming again. He, he sent his spirit he sent his Holy Spirit to change us. And it says that by glory, from glory to glory, we're being changed. But on that day when we see him, we will be like him. The light of the world has not been extinguished and he's coming again. And there'll be a day we don't have to deal with those things. Where that self-love that always lets us down will not be the thing that's controlling us anymore. But until that day, every single person in here needs it to be said about them. The same thing that is said about Noah. That Jeff found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That Mike found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That Allison found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We desperately need the grace of God every day. Amen? So this is the purpose of Advent. Come on up, Sam. We're going to be closing in worship here in just a second. This is the purpose of Advent. Life's a mess. And you need something to fix it. But it's not found at Walmart. It's not found at Costco. It's not even found at Jared. It's found in the gracious love. The, the gracious act of love 
For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. The gift that matters, the one that will sustain you is not the one that's bought at the store. It's the one that's been given and is coming again. The gift that's gonna change you is not bought in any store. It's in the son of God given for you. The family gathering that's going to fulfill you is not, as great as your family might be, is not in that family gathering when you cut the ham or whatever it is that you eat that day. It's on the fact that you've been and have the opportunity to be adopted into the family of God and gather with Him at feast and gather with Him and join together in a place where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more sin. That's where our hope is. So this Christmas, we look at this stuff. We look at the Christmas trees in our homes. We look at the lights in our house and we love them amen we look at this stuff and go it's fun it's good to enjoy the holiday season but our hope is not in the shadow of any of it our hope is in the substance to what all of these things point to the great light of the world our savior jesus christ will you stand with me as we close in worship There's going to be some men and women available in the back to just pray with you. If you've put your hope in a whole lot of other things in earth other other than Jesus Christ, you need to come. You need to come receive. There'll be some people in front, some people in the back, people somewhere. You might be, just grab the guy next to you. Hopefully he's there too. but, But listen, you need Jesus more than you need Jared. You need Jesus more than you need the BMW. You need Jesus more than you need the family gathering. You need Jesus. I'm begging you, don't leave here without him today. Lord, we commit this time to you. And just in this moment, Lord, may we tune out the commercials and tune out uh, the commercialization of the holiday. May we tune out the distractions and the things that the world tries to sell us. And just for a moment now, God. May you, by your spirit, empower us to worship the substance, not the shadow. May you give us just this moment with no distraction to reveal and to remember, I should say, what what an incredible and gracious gift you are and the love that you've given, the light of the world. Let's sing. To the cross of...